Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today, I'm joined by Thomas Fibiger. Thomas is the newly appointed Associate Professor at Arab and Islamic Studies at Aarhus University. He's uh, an anthropologist by trade, and he spent a lot of time working on Bahrain and the Middle East more broadly. He's done a number of activities with SEPAD, and I'm really excited to welcome him onto the podcast today. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. It's our pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Um, Can we start, Thomas, just by, I guess, asking you, what is it that got you interested in in the Middle East and and anthropology? What was it that that was driving your interest in in both of those disciplines? I mean, most of our guests are, are traditionally political scientists. Yes. Uh, if we start uh, chronologically, uh, for me, uh, I started off as an anthropology student uh, some 20 years ago, 20 plus, um, here in Aarhus, um, because I was interested in uh, in human life and social life uh, and cultures around the world, Right. Um, which is uh, generally the, the, the theme of anthropology. Of course, I didn't know exactly what anthropology was at that time, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I learned that I was quite interested in, in human life and human experiences, and I have carried on that interest in my work in, in the Gulf. Uh, then uh, the, the place where anthropology is in, in Aarhus, the campus, uh, is a bit off the main campus in Aarhus, which, but uh, situated together with a museum of uh, archaeology and anthropology. And that particular museum has worked with the Gulf, and in particular Bahrain, uh, for decades, since the 1950s. Right. And I got involved in that uh, project uh, as a master student uh, in and, and went to Bahrain the first time in 2003 together with this museum. Uh, doing my master's on uh, how uh, the history that these archaeologists have worked with uh, had importance among Bahrainis uh, in their uh, life and, and, and worldview today. Amazing. Not only in the nation, but also generally among Bahrainis. Right. And that's, that's piqued your interest in both Bahrain and exploring the, the experiences of, of Bahrainis, I guess. Yes, exactly. And and one thing that I learned from this project was that uh, some of part of the project was a kind of visitor study in the in the museum. And while visitors are generally uh, uh, pleased with the museum and think that it's a great place, they also think that they don't invest that much into it in in the visits, as I think many visitors and many museums uh, do not. Uh, but in Bahrain, particularly, most of their historical uh, consciousness is tied to other stories that are not on display in such a place uh, simply because the museum tries to make a very broad national uh, story that uh, potentially could represent uh, everyone but in that process maybe comes to represent very few because most Bahrainis are uh, attached to other stories that are not available there but available in other places. Yeah, of course. What was the, the, the main narrative of the museum that you were hinting at then, Thomas? The, the narrative of the museum is one of, uh, first of all, there's the, the pre-Islamic uh, part, which, uh, which is important to the Danish-Bahraini collaboration, um, which is a, one of a, a long-standing ancient civilization that has kind of laid the, the foundation of, of, of modern-day Bahrain, you could say, that they, have a very, that they have very ancient roots and are tied to a larger Mesopotamian uh, civilization. Um, but that also implies that the more... Uh, 
recent history is one of uh, is an Arab history connected to uh, to Arabia and uh, which is a common uh, identity for for all Bahrainis. Um, and that makes it a bit of, you could say, an empty signifier in terms of how Bahrainis uh, feel, their, uh, what, what Bahrainis feel about their identities. Interesting. So, on that trip, what were your, uh, well, looking back on it, I should say, what were your, uh, what are your memories of of Bahrain in two thousand and three? It's obviously had a, a big impact on your, on your ensuing career. But, but what are your memories reflecting back on it? Well, I, I, I quickly learned that there was uh, much more to uh, to society than uh, than I could read uh, from books and from um, from from Bahraini society itself, or from that this uh, kind of historical orientation that I had in, in with, with the museum, um, and uh, that it was a very uh, uh, lively and uh, an interesting culture and also political scene. So 2003 was only a couple of years after this, the, the so-called referendum or Mithak, the National Charter, uh, that uh, put a new constitution for Bahrain and turned it into a kingdom and also gave some uh, political uh, liberalization um, and, and reinstalled the parliament, for example. So there was a, widely, a lively debate and also um, uh, a, a great uh, deal of both enthusiasm on one hand, but also disappointment on the other uh, with this uh, with, with this new uh, era and constitution. Mm. Uh, so that was a, I, I learned a lot from that, and I also learned a lot about the, the political issues uh, that uh, and identity issues that were avail- that were uh, current in Bahrain at that time and still are. Sure. So you went back to uh, to Denmark after this trip, and then you you decided that a PhD was the way to go. Well, yes, uh, yes, I, I decided that, and I wanted to uh, to then explore uh, history, or rather, the the meaning of the past and the various pasts that were engaged uh, by Bahrainis uh, in the community, in the society, as such, uh, away from the museum. So I, I decided to sort of leave the museum and study uh, history and the, the meaning of the past, the importance of the past and the present. Uh, among Bahrainis more generally. And one thing that I should also say that that, that did the trick for this uh, was a particular uh, experience, uh, perhaps not a surprising experience uh, to uh, people who know, who know Bahrain, uh, but uh, I witnessed the Ashura uh, rituals Right. Uh, a few times uh, uh, before my PhD, and this uh, this is a totally different way of, uh, of of going into history than I was uh, used to from the museum and also from more scholarly approaches. This very experiential, uh, experience near way of, of sensing history and making history very much a part of uh, of the present. Mm. And in that uh, regard, I also uh, I, I became more and more interested in, in Shiism and, uh, and and Shia Muslims in in Bahrain, uh, and from that I also learned about the uh, sectarian aspects uh, that we are now uh, discussing. Sure. So, can I just ask, uh, just briefly, what was your PhD on then, Thomas? My PhD was uh, was on uh, the. Uh, uh, History, I call it historicity, uh, drawing on a, an anthropological notion of historicity, meaning the ways the past is engaged in the present and the ways uh, past, present and future are, are enmeshed in various uh, societies. Uh, so uh, it was about how the past is made important in the, in the present, uh, in political imagination, but also in religious imagination among uh, Bahrainis. Fantastic. And it, it sounds like a really interesting uh, bit of work. And if it's anything like the rest of your work, which I've read, it'll be really, really wonderful. But can you tell us, 
I mean, you, you're dealing with these really interesting questions about anthropology, uh, sorry, about about identity and past and narratives and experience. What is it about anthropology, do you think, that that leaves it well disposed to, to offer an analysis of these different accounts? Well, I think that other disciplines could do that as well, but anthropology and anthropologists are, are taught or trained to, um, to, to start with the people and what is, uh, what is important to people and, in, and people's uh, everyday life or at least people's uh, uh, individual and uh, communal imagination and, and ideas about society. Uh, so we start rather than by starting by political structures or uh, you could say more Islamologically by uh, theology or doctrines, we start with uh, with what is important to people. Um, and uh, in that sense, I think that my interest in, in how the past is important has started with, with how people see the past and not what is uh, defined by history proper by, uh, by any academic or, or political uh, discipline. Right, okay. Uh, yeah. That, I think that's... So that is, that is what... Yeah. Sorry, go on, please. No, that is that is just uh, just one thing, and then of course uh, this also gives you an idea about what is important in society to to people, and also how they respond to and react to political uh, processes, which have then I uh, have uh, gone on working more on this uh, political scene. Of course, also because I it's actually a long time now that I submitted my PhD in uh, in in late two thousand and ten, and then. Uh, just a few months later, uh, the Arab Spring, uh, the then what was then termed the Arab Spring, uh, I wouldn't say it turned everything upside down, but at least uh, uh, saw a lot of uh, structures uh, come into motion mm. and being affected by, by these uh, processes. Of course, and, and Bahrain has its its own peculiarities with regard to the the Arab uprisings, and we'll we'll touch on that in a minute if that's okay. But before yeah, we get yeah. to that. Uh, You've you've written on some really interesting other parts of, of Bahraini history, particularly with regard to the the pearling and the uh, the pearl monument and and that type of the sort of the legacy of, of Bahrain's ancient past, its un Islamic past. Can you say a little bit yes. about the the place of of the pearling industry and and the pearl monument? I mean, scholars of Bahrain will know that it was um, it was a monument in in Pearl Roundabout that was quickly demolished in, in the early early stages of the, the Arab uprisings. But yes. can you just say a bit about why that was so important, why it was so symbolic, and why it was so, uh, so or seemed to be so dangerous to the, the regime that they, they withdrew a 600-field coin because it had that symbol on it? Yeah. I think I, I just think it's a very interesting story about how uh, symbols of heritage uh, can become important and how they can be uh, have different meanings to different uh, parts of society, uh, and that was the reason that I have engaged within in, in some of my articles also, uh, but also because it was such a potent uh, event, uh, both the uprising itself, but also the, the way that it was crushed and the monument was uh, was destroyed. Um, uh, uh, to, to just speak about the, the Pearl Monument itself as a symbol, it was a symbol of the state. You could say uh, it was uh, raised in, erected in, in 1981 uh, on the occasion of a meeting in the um, in the Gulf uh, in the GCC Gulf Cooperation Council. 
the first of its meetings in, in Bahrain, uh, and it uh, symbolized, it had six swords holding a pearl, and the pearl was, of course, the, uh, the kind of economic backdrop, if you will, or the economic main resource before oil in the Gulf countries. Uh, I have uh, dealt a little bit with, with that in sort of my more historical uh, studies. Um, uh, and the swords each represent each of these six swords represented one of the GCC countries, uh, suggesting that these Arab countries uh, held up this uh, heritage and legacy uh, and provided the welfare also of uh, of, of the whole region. Mm. Uh, so in that sense, it was a state symbol, and I I don't think that it was uh, very disputed uh, uh, in those in in the years leading up to uh, to the uprising revolt in, in 2011. I'd rather call it revolt than spring, but at that time it was sure, spring. Yeah. Um, um, but um, uh, the reason that people uh, gathered here was uh, partly inspired by uh, by the uprising in Egypt uh, uh, and the Tahrir Square gathering, um, and partly because it was a convenient uh, meeting point because uh, it is a, a pearl monument, uh, uh, which is the center of a roundabout, or was the center of a roundabout back then, which uh, where all the main roads from western part of Bahrain uh, came into the capital, uh, Manama. And therefore, it was a good point for meeting to to join uh, for people to join and meet uh, at that particular place. And I, I believe it was the first time that there was a camp uh, made in a political protest in in Bahrain. But it was certainly not the first time to uh, to make such kind of demonstrations. It was uh, there would have been demonstrations anyway because this was the ten year ten year anniversary, uh, the day of the ten year anniversary of the constitution, and sure. people had uh, planned to protest this. Uh, anniversary anyhow. Uh, and there had been a lot of protests, but then now uh, a, a camp was made. Um, and we all know, or most uh, people know, knowing about the Middle East would know about this uh, story and how it was crushed. But then uh, also the, the the monument itself was uh, crushed. And uh, the uh, uh, the foreign minister of uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs for Bahrain uh, argued that, or said in a press conference, that this was uh, to avoid a, a bad memory. Uh, right. This place. And I, I thought that was an interesting uh, proposition uh, or argument that, that they, they tried to uh, avoid the memory, uh, to protect, turn this into a memory site and by that way uh, crushing it. Uh, because we have seen in other places, such as uh, famously Ground uh, Zero in New York, how uh, taking away a, a something from a place does not necessarily, necessarily uh, make a uh, make it uh, not part of memory. I, I, I would believe that, or could argue that, that Ground Zero and other places are uh, much more memorized now than they were before. Yeah, of course. Or known. No, uh, and and the same thing could uh, suggestively be be happening in 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 Bahrain, uh, even though this is still for the future to uh, to see. But certainly, uh, the uh, Pearl Monument, the coin, the five hundred. Phil's coin was taken out of circulation as well, and and uh, the Pearl Monument was now appropriated by the um, uprisers, by the demonstrators and, and opposition, as a symbol of the uprising, and not a symbol of the state or the GCC, uh, rather counter to it. Uh, and that irony was, uh, uh, was very interesting, I think. Uh, and today it is a, a symbol of the uprising and a symbol of... Uh, uh, of countering the regime. Because mm. it strikes me that that there is a, a really powerful heritage there that's been in many ways pushed to one side, um, given that, that the pearl industry was so prominent in, in Gulf history that in trying to remove this bad memory of the, the protests, 
they've also, in many ways, eviscerated a great deal of the the country and the the GCC past. Yes. Uh, well, one can say that 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 uh, this is, of course, only a symbol of that past. But uh, it, it is quite striking that the the, the regime uh, goes as far as to destroy some of its own symbols and, and symbols of, of of the state and of the past. Um, that that was, uh, in other cases, highlighted very much. Uh, but it was uh, clearly. And I think uh, the reasons for that was was right that that it, this place was appropriated by the uh, by the uprising, and the symbolism of the the Pearl Monument changed at least for the uh, demonstrators uh, from being a symbol of the state to being a symbol of the uprising. And and I think that process is very interesting. Uh, mm. That the transformation of heritage and and uh, potential for heritage symbols uh, in the political field is interesting. Sure. Both a potential that was seen by the regime as a, as a danger, a dangerous potential, but also seen as the protest as a, as a constructive potential to uh, to mobilize people. Yeah, of course. Thomas, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about a range of different things, but we've not really touched on sectarianism, which is how I got to know your work in the first place. And, yes. and regular listeners of the podcast will know we've, we've spoken to a range of different scholars working on, on sectarianism. But, but your work does something a little bit different because it's coming from the anthropological background. So I'm going to ask you a similar question to what I asked uh, previously. But what do you think anthropology brings to the study of sectarianism that's, that's missing from, from other disciplinary approaches? Again, I think that uh, listening to people's everyday uh, voices and grievances and, and experiences uh, provides a more uh, nuanced, perhaps, and also a picture uh, than, than only looking at uh, political structures and also uh, shows how people in, on the ground, if you will, in the everyday life and in, in, in the broader society uh, are affected by, but also, and most importantly, I think, respond and uh, negotiate uh, sectarian uh, structures, if you will. Uh, yes, uh, what the, what they themselves, and that's pretty clear in Bahrain, see as a, as a problem of sectarianism. Mm. Uh, so that would be my short answer, uh, and and uh, this uh, uh, this goes in in, in several directions uh, because uh, when you look at and at these grassroots perspectives, they are often uh, complex and also of course partial to the perspective that you learn about as an anthropologist. Uh, you you rarely get the overview, but more uh, individual experiences and try to 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 get these together in a pattern uh, to see the patterns in this. Um, uh, but uh, this both show that uh, a sectarian, an experience of sectarianism and an experience of, 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 of a worsening of sectarian relations uh, have certainly been the case in a place like Bahrain over the past, uh, since the uh, uprising, but also before that, um, it, it has affected uh, people, um, but also that they uh, respond to and negotiate and try to avoid that in in many circumstances. And therefore, I also welcome this perspective on desectarianization that you have uh, forwarded. Well, thank you. That's kind of you to say. And I was going to ask you a question about that uh, in a in a minute. But but just before I do, I I just was was reflecting on on the first time that I met you, Thomas, when I was preparing for this podcast, and it was. It was at a workshop, one of the Svar workshops in, in Aarhus. 
And and you made yes. such a, a damning critique of the instrumentalist view of of sectarianism, and it was so simple. But I wonder if you can just repeat it or recount it for our listeners. I mean, what what you think the problem with the pure instrumentalist approach to sectarianism is, please. Well, thank you very much. I don't know if I can repeat it so uh, so so clearly then, then that you then you remember it uh, because I do think that this is a complex issue. But but I I think that uh, as one of the kind of point of departures for the SWA projects and also for other uh, projects and, and writings on sectarianism was that that both the uh, instrumentalist kind of position that uh, looks at how regimes strategically and other political entrepreneurs. Uh, put, uh, strategically play on sectarianism and uh, uh, its opposite, uh, a more uh, what you could call primordial position that, um, or primordialist position that, that, that takes sectarian identities for granted and says, uh, argues that, that this has been uh, going on for, since the birth of Islam or at least uh, very soon after, uh, are, are flawed in, in many ways or do not explain everything. And one, one issue that uh, I perhaps uh, have with, with the instrumentalist position is is that uh, that people on the ground um, are um, what, who I would call non-entrepreneurs are uh, to what extent uh, affected by this uh, instrumentalist uh, rhetoric that is that are clearly that is clearly there, but they also respond to it and try to negotiate it and try to to get beyond it um, and and uh, and counter it. And therefore, I think that uh, that in an instrumentalist approach to how uh, society is affected by uh, sectarian. Uh, politics uh, does not explain everything. Thank you so I don't much. Know if that was the argument that we were looking for. It was indeed. Yeah, thank you, uh, Thomas. I'm conscious that you're on a you're on a clock, and and we've taken up a lot of your time already. But I have one short question, if I may, uh, and that yes, just yes, of course. Thank you so much. And that just relates to to desectarianization, and and you you kindly hinted at at what we've been doing, and. We have a special issue coming out early next year that I'm very excited that you're you're a part of. But can you just give us a, a bit of a hint about the the anthropological dimensions to desectarianization, please? Yes, I, I perhaps it's time to actually speak some anthropology or ethnography, if you will, <laughs> some, some concrete empirical examples. Sure. And and one example that I that I use in uh, in that uh, in in my article for that uh, issue, hopefully, uh, is. Um, that uh, one family that I know very well in, in Bahrain, um, we discussed these issues of uh, Shia and Sunni and sectarianism, and then then she one one of the children, an 11 year old girl, she interrupted our conversation and, and said, uh, "Mom, are we Shia?" Um, and I just appreciated that uh, question very much because uh, it shows that you can actually grow up in a and, and I would identify that family as Shia and the, the, the parents are quite consciously about their Shia identity uh, but they have apparently been able to, to bring up their children at least to this stage uh, of, of not being fully aware of this identity and, and that has been quite deliberate because they don't want that to be all that kind of identifies you and yeah. she also had encountered a, a, a school uh, friend who has said to her, it is good that we can play because you are not Shia. And that also got her confused because she was not absolutely certain whether she was or not. Uh, but it certainly shows that there are some people, um, parents perhaps, who uh, try to make these identities very uh, clear and, and also uh, uh, decisive of who you can play with um, and who you can uh, get along with. Uh, but there are also those who counter this. And I think that uh, dichotomy and all that, that uh, complex situation is, is very chilling. 
Yeah, it certainly is. Thomas, thank you so much for talking with us today. I've, I've really enjoyed it and I've really enjoyed learning from you a great deal over the past few years that I've known you. I think you bring so much to these discussions that are, that are often dominated by politics, political science, and, and I'm really, really pleased that, that you're able to, to speak to, contribute to, and push these debates forward in new and interesting ways. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Again, thank you very much for having me and thank you for these nice words. And likewise, uh, I really uh, appreciate your project and your work. And and it's uh, very great being part of this project. And I think that is very important uh, that you do this. That's kind of you to say, Thomas. So thank you so much. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.